give you a quick run through of what's getting ready to happen. As far as I know, we're still going to have our Christmas Eve service on Friday night at 6 p.m., and that will uh, last until approximately 7, and then um, uh, everyone will be going home with their friends or family to celebrate our Savior's birth. Uh, Second announcement is that Chafer Seminary Spring Semester is January... Registration is January 3rd through January 20th. So right after the new year, that next Monday, the spring semester registration uh, is open, and the registration fee is waived if you register for between the 3rd and the 9th. So you have a week there to register and no registration fee. Tuition is free for those churches that contribute a certain amount of money each year to Chafer Seminary. West Houston Bible Church members uh, are uh, therefore have their tuition waived. Tuition is free for West Houston Bible Church members, and there are going to be flyers, and I would like one of them because somebody was asking me about that today, so before I forget it tonight, uh, get a flyer to, for the courses, and then thinking way ahead, Sunday, February the 6th is our annual congregational meeting. We always encourage everyone to attend, but if there's voting, and I think there's only a couple of things related to voting coming up, um, only church members can can vote, but it's good for everybody to know what we're thinking and what's going on. And uh, so we've had, we made this announcement Sunday morning, had a couple of people who've applied for membership, and so you can find out about that. And then last but not least, there's a new Bible reading plan available on the DBM website for 2022. So if you are following that, there are so many different reading plans. We can't put all of them up there. I know Lagos has several different reading plans and uh, different versions that you can use. You can read, you can listen um, with the various audio Bibles that are available. And um, so uh, make it a plan to go through the coming year. Read your Bible all the way through in a year. Uh, it would amaze you that there are some pastors who I know and who will remain nameless that have never read their Bible all the way through. Although they start every year with good intentions to make it through this coming year. So um, we all get tied up with various uh, challenges and issues. They probably read, th- th- those pastors have probably read their Bible all the way through, just not in a year. But over the course of time, they probably have, have made it. But uh, it's important to do that. We need to really have the Word stored in our soul. This world is getting crazier by the minute. We're going to talk about some of it tonight. And uh, I don't know that looking at history outside of maybe a few times that anything has been quite so drastically changing and quickly changing as it is right now. So we need to be in prayer, prayer for that. So we'll take a few minutes and make sure, have silent prayer to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, it's such a privilege to come before your throne of grace, to be focused upon you, to be thankful of all that you have provided for us, all that you have given us, recognizing that the spiritual assets, the spiritual provisions, promises, all of the um, different uh, problem-solving devices and spiritual skills that you have given us are beyond that of any believer at any time in history. We have the indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who uh, empowers us when we are walking by the Spirit. And Father, we pray that we might not take these things lightly, but that we might focus on all that we have in you and that you are our strong tower and our shield and our fortress and our rock and that even though uh, the waves of Satan's attacks come against us left and right, nevertheless we know that you protect us, and our responsibility is to simply to keep our focus upon you and walk by means of the Spirit and learn your word, study your word, internalize your word, and apply your word, and then we will be uh, right where you want us to be. And we pray these things. Tonight, as we study your word, in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. What we are studying, so you don't lose the sight of the, uh, of the, of the uh, trees for the forest or the forest for the trees, is understanding what has happened in Israel in the period of the judges, the dynamics that have taken place as a result of the shift from what God has revealed in the Torah to paganism, and we're just highlighting that. And what I'll show you some tonight is that the essence of paganism is what we call, what philosophers call and students of religions call monism. Not a net, always a user-friendly term for a lot of people. And the question that does come up, which I'm hoping to address this, this evening, is how can you reduce everything, all these other religious beliefs and philosophies, ultimately to monism? And I'll show you. It's not something I invented. I'm not coming up with this. This is understood by many, many uh, people far more educated and far more involved in studying all of these things than, than I am. So we're going to understand the importance of understanding something about monism, especially in relation to the particular topic that underlies the, the episode of Deborah and Barak in terms of uh, sexual roles, sexual responsibilities, in terms of the fact that God has given to each sex specific roles and responsibilities. That flies in the face. That is considered so antiquated and so antediluvian and so barbaric by those who do not have any doctrine, any divine viewpoint in their soul whatsoever, that it appalls them that anyone would be so primitive. And we really have to understand that is the lie that the devil has shaped throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, in, in paganism. So we come back to what I pointed out at the beginning last year. We have only two choices. 
we're either going to believe the Bible or we're going to believe in the worldview that energized and empowered the Tower of Babel. And that, led, that was an approach to globalism and it was uh, an approach to internationalism and God had to destroy it by causing uh, all of the multiple languages to come along. And where was Babel? Babel is in the location, uh, historic location of Babylon in Iraq today. And so the, throughout the Bible, you always see this juxtaposition of Jerusalem, the city of God, and Babylon, the city of man. And so it comes down to, are we going to think like God wants us to think, think God's thoughts after him, or are we going to think the way that seems right to us? And of course, twice in Proverbs, we are reminded that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And that is so important to remember, because our sin nature which is not eradicated, diminished at all by our salvation, is attracted to the thoughts that are generated from Babylon. And so it also comes down to a biblical worldview or Satan's worldview. Are we going to think like God or think like Satan? Those are the only two options. There's no neutrality. There's no place where we can just be comfortable in between and have everything else leave us alone. Because the entire creation is enmeshed in the angelic rebellion. That is Satan's rebellion against God, and we can't get away from it. As much as we may not like it, as much as it makes us uncomfortable, as much as we just want to be left alone, live our life, and have a really comfortable, um, uh, peaceful existence, we can't get away from it. And this is something that I think we're witnessing the effects of this in the world around us today. We've seen these kind of things explode throughout history, but it just it's exploding in, in an international way right now that, that is appalling. So we've studied in Judges. Three divisions in Judges, the introduction which introduces the cycles, and what's the cause? Compromise with paganism. We looked at chapters uh, from chapter 3, 7 to 16, 31, talking about the different cycles of the Judges. All of this is to show how the leadership in Israel becomes gradually and increasingly more and more paganized. They look, act, think, and imitate the pagans around them. Now, what is paganism? Paganism is not a derogatory term. Paganism is not an insult. Paganism is a term that is used, if you look it up in your dictionary, to describe those thought forms that are not derived from a monotheistic religion. That's the technical thing. So that would include Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I pointed out last time, Islam is pagan. Islam worships Allah, who is a created being. He is not the same as the God of the Bible for many different reasons. I don't want to get distracted by that thought. Allah is not the Bible. He is the enemy of the God of the Bible and, the, and God's people in the Bible. So, And a lot of Judaism is. 
In Judaism, if you are close to an, uh, the understanding of the worldview embedded within the Torah, embedded within the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, and that would be not necessarily Orthodox, because the Orthodox get really twisted off on a lot of things. But if you're close to that and you are uh, Jewish, then you're close to that to that worldview. But if you're not, if you're Reformed, if you're what they call reconstructionist, then you're just as flaky as any New Ager out there or any uber-liberal. Because basically you're making up your spirituality as you go along in Reformed Judaism. Conservatism in Judaism doesn't mean they're, they're the more conservative. It means they're not as liberal as the Reformed. Okay? It, that's all it means. Because the definition of reform changed between the Ref- Protestant Reformation and the, in, the mid-1700s when uh, Moses Mendelssohn, the, follow- the father of the uh, composer Felix Mendelssohn, who just didn't believe anything in the Bible at all, and he wanted to stay Jewish, and so he invented a new form of Judaism, which he called reform, because they were going to reform it according to the dictates of the Enlightenment, rationalism and empiricism. And so that took them where they were just as, as liberal as they could be. And there were a number of Jews who didn't want to quite go that far, so they wanted to say somewhat close to the historic scriptures of the Jews, so they were called conservatives because they weren't as bad as the really liberal reform people. And then in the 20th century, they came up with the Reconstructionists, which are way out there on the left. Okay, so the issue is all of that that is not biblical is pagan. And we see how the leadership in Israel become paganized and what the manifestations of that were. And it manifested itself at the time because they're worshiping the nature gods. And whether you called it uh, called them Baal or whether Melkart or some of the other different names used in the different pan- national pantheons of Egypt, of these uh, uh, Canaanites or of the Greeks or the Romans or the uh, Assyrians or the Babylonians, they, they were all worshiping the forces of nature. And you say, well, we don't really do that anymore. Well, when did you really take a good hard look at the whole uh, ecology movement and the worship of Mother Earth and uh, nature? Because that's all embedded in that. If you want a really deep dive into the philosophy of that, then you need to read uh, Mark Musser's book. And he'll take you through all of the romanticism of the Germans, the idealism of Hegel and Kierkegaard and all of those things that set the stage for the pantheism and the uh, paganism of Nazi religion. And the name of his book is Nazi Oaks. So we have this paganism and the paganization of the priests and the people at the end. So it's all about contrasting what God has revealed with this rejection of what God has revealed and the worship of the creation. So by way of introduction, with a little bit of review here, this is all new material, is I wanted to break this down for us in terms of some New Testament scripture and why this is important. Why do we need to learn about monism? 
First of all, we are in a war. Whether you like it or not, you have been drafted at the instant of your salvation, and you have become a soldier in the Lord's army, and you are in this war. It is an invisible war, as Donald Gray Barnhouse put it in his classic work on uh, the spiritual warfare. Many have improved on his view, but developed it, but that's a classic book. We are in a war, an invisible war, a spiritual war, but it manifests itself in what is often called the culture wars today. And culture here doesn't refer to what some people think of as culture which is high culture, which is talking about uh, the higher forms of music and art and architecture. Culture really means the value system within a group of people, how they live, how they relate to each other, what their belief systems are, and and how they function on a day-to-day basis. I had a uh, leader in my church in Irving some 30 years or more years ago, and he was a brilliant guy at what he did, and he would go into uh, corporations and businesses that had functionality problems within their organization, and he would help them figure out what their culture was and how to change the culture. Every family has a culture. Every job site has a culture. Every church has a culture. Every group of human beings living and working together has some kind of a culture. And we, when one culture is based on the Bible and attempts to be as, as close to the Bible as they can, they're going to run into conflict with everybody else. Because the person who came along who was the most consistent in his divine viewpoint and was the most consistent in articulating the truth, and who stood for the truth and who represented God and manifest God to all of the human race, was hated and vilified and crucified. And he said to his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so the option is that if you want to be liked and you want to be popular, you want to get along and not have a lot of friction, then walking with the Lord is probably not the place to be because the world is is against you. Worldliness is at least as big a problem as your sin nature if not more so, because it's sort of a, the conglomerate of everybody else's sin natures. And that's why in James, James writes that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. There's, there's no place that you can run and hide between those two options. And we have to understand a little bit about what the world is. And that's what, what this introduction is about, because you can't run and hide. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And in First John says, if you love the world, you hate God. So you can't love God and love the world at the same time. So we're in this culture war. It is a thought war. It's a battle of ideology. And we have Ephesians 6.12 as an introduction to this, where Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Now, when you studied all of those terms out in the New Testament, what they refer to is the hierarchy that exists within the angelic powers, whether you're talking about the forces of Satan, the demons, or whether you're talking about the the elect angels. They are in authority structures, they're organized, and this is their their structure. But it's it's invisible, and they utilize human beings to fulfill their objectives. Second point is that this spiritual war, this extension of the angelic rebellion into human history is, I thought I took that two out, is fought according to the mandates of Scripture. I messed something up on my slide here. Sorry about that. I got distracted. Is fought according to the mandates of Scripture in a way consistent with the character of God. So see, we are to fight this war the way God wants us to fight the war, not the way we think we ought to fight the war. And that's always a problem. It takes us back to the basic principle that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. The end never justifies the means. That is one of the hardest things to get seminary students and pastors to ever understand. When Tommy Ice and I were battle buddies going through Dallas Seminary, and we at that time were dealing with issues uh, related to the role of psychology and counseling in the local church and saying, you know, a right thing done in a wrong way, these are all wrong methodologies. All these different methodologies for how to grow a church, how to um, um, get in, you know, the whole church growth movement, this, these are all human viewpoint techniques. A lot of evangelism is nothing more than taking principles of salesmanship and changing the names uh, to predict to, to protect the world so it looks like it came from the Bible. But that's not what it does. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now what that means is, though we walk, that has to do with our lifestyle. We walk in the flesh. In the flesh, in this context, means in our mortal bodies. We live in a three-dimensional world that is related to the physical universe that God created. But we don't war according to the flesh. And there the word flesh refers to the sin nature, the standards of sinful humanity. We have to conduct this war in a way that is consistent with the righteousness of God and the character of God and the mandates that are that are in uh, the Scripture. I keep having the same principle on three slides, and I'm sure I, I know I changed them. So we'll go from four to five. Uh, this should be point three. The primary location of the battle is between our ears. It's in our thinking. It's the way we think. It's how we think. It's what we think. Most people go to passages like uh, Philippians 4, uh, 7, and they think that how we think, that that when the Bible talks about the thinking of the believer, it's what we think, that we're not going to think about certain things. We're not going to have lustful thoughts. We're not going to focus on things that we shouldn't focus on. But that that's the simplified version for the kindergartners. 
But when you get out of second, third, fourth grade, as you grow in your spiritual life, you have to start thinking about how you think. One of my seminary professors had one or two things that were worth remembering, the rest of it not. And he used to say, it's hard to think about how you think. Yeah, excuse me. He used to say, it's hard to think. It is. It's hard to really think. But it's harder to think about how you think. And most people don't want to think about how they think. That'll give them a headache and they'll go to bed early. But we have to think about how we think because the devil thinks one way and we are to think another way, the way in which we think, how we think. And that's what this verse goes on, to, on to, this passage goes on to say. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh, but they're powerful by God. God's power is what strengthens us in this battle for the destruction of fortifications. And that, those are mental fortifications in the context. Because when you go to the next verse, it talks about arguments and things raised against the knowledge of God and that we're to bring every thought captive. So three things in verse 5 tell us that the realm of these fortifications is between our ears. And we have to think about that. And we have to learn how to think about that. We have to think about how we think, because you can think on the basis of wrong presuppositions. You can think on the basis of of, uh, irrationality and mysticism, which a lot of Christians do today. A sad thing about the history of American Christianity is starting in the Really, you can see a few planted seeds in the mid-18th century, the mid-1700s, but those seeds multiply and they begin to grow a little more when you get into the early 1800s, and faith becomes redefined as an emotional encounter with God. And with that, as it begins to spread through various uh, liberal denominations and also your more emotional holiness groups, uh, people... Uh, are emoting and thinking that's faith. And this this really becomes bad when you get into the late 19th century and into the 20th century. And people think that, that their emotions, how they feel, is how God leads them. And you've heard me say this many times, the, the, the hymn, uh, He Lives, He Lives. A hymn that many of us love except for one phrase. He, you ask me how I know he lives. And the next line says, he lives within my heart. That's subjectivity. That's emotionalism. That's mysticism. That is not biblical. You ask me how I know he lives because the Bible tells me so. But unfortunately, that doesn't rhyme. And that's how we know that the tomb is empty because there were witnesses and the Bible records it in in an inerrant word. And we know he lives not because he lives within me but because he, the Bible tells me so and he appeared to over 500 in his resurrection body. So we've always had this trouble with our minds thinking the wrong way, thinking in terms of uh, emotion and intuition and mysticism. 
So what we have to do is learn about how, what we are to think and how we are to think. And so in this verse, you, get, you have the statement that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh that is related to our mortal body and mortal existence, physical, physical existence, but they're powerful by God. Our weapons are powered by God. It's not a verb, it's a noun, but that's what it's saying. The power comes and it's by God. God is, empowers us. What, for what purpose? For the destruction of these mental fortifications. And we all have these mental fortifications because from the day we came out of the womb, we started fortifying our own personal opinions and desires and wants to shape the world around us according to what we wanted. And we built rationalizations and justifications and everything in order to do it the way we wanted to do it and not the way anybody else wanted to do it. And so those fortifications, that's what it's talking about, those habits, those mental habits, the, the rationalizations and justifications have to be taken down. And how do we do that? We do it, we destroy those fortifications or demolish those fortifications by casting down or, again, demolishing or destroying arguments, the rationalizations that are against divine viewpoint thinking. By casting down arguments and every high thing, everything that is raised up against the knowledge about God. And that's the normal trajectory of the sin nature. Nobody gets away from it. The first way is to cast down arguments raised against the knowledge of God, and we are able to cast down those arguments by bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So all of our opinions, all of our likes and dislikes, all of our rationalizations, justifications, all of our, uh, our values that are just a little bit off-center or way off-center, we're to bring every one of those into captivity for the obedience of Christ. That means we are like a lion tamer, and we have to tame our sin nature. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it as by, by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, this is what we're looking at. That's the foundation. It's thinking. Now, last time we looked at Romans one twenty and following, and we saw that there's basically three exchanges that te- take place, that God has given a witness externally to his existence in the handiwork, the magnificence of his physical creation. Every single molecule and atom is branded with God's ownership. And there's something he built into our immaterial soul that recognizes that from the get-go. Sin nature doesn't, do, doesn't get rid of it. It may obfuscate it but not completely. And so when we look at things that, that it is announcing to us, the creation itself preaches to us that God made it, God exists. And it's evidence of his existence, and he knows it, and he makes it clear in us. And he's, it's the, the text says that it's understood by the things that are made, 
And verse 21, because although the greatest atheists knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts are darkened. So the issue in rebellion against God is always the realm of thinking. Verse 22 goes on to say, professing to be wise, piling up advanced degrees, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So they're making an exchange here uh, in terms of worship. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's the essence of paganism, is worshiping. And, and the way this ought to be redefined, the word that is translated um, creature, when we get down to verse 25, they serve the creature rather than the creator. If you go back to verse 20, for since the creation of the world, notice that the word creation is a noun. It's katissus in the Greek. It's the same thing that you have uh, down in verse 25, that's translated creature. And this ought to be translated who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creation, whether it's animate or inanimate, organic or inorganic. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And that's where we get the doctrine of the creator-creature distinction. So you have a worship exchange in verse 23. You have a truth exchange in verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. There's nothing in between. There's no white lie. They're just all actually black lies. They're all lies. It's either truth or lies. There's no in between. And they're worshiping and serving the creation. Then we get into verse 26. There's another exchange. This is a sexual exchange. And I'm using sexual not in terms of the sexual act, but in terms of the sexual sexes, the individual sexes of male and female. And so they become redefined as a result of what? As a result of, of violating the creator-creature distinction. When you worship the creation, a result of that is the confusion of sexual identity. That's endemic to paganism. And that's going to be seen as we go through Judges quite a bit. Likewise, so you have the women exchanging the natural use for what is against nature. What is nature? Nature is the way God intended something. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use. So you have that phrase twice. The natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. So what we see is that as a result of the worship exchange and a result of the truth exchange, there is an exchange of sexual identity. That means that paganism is inherently and intimately connected 
to sexual perversion and confusion. You can't escape that. Verse 28, and even as, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. I underline those two phrases because there's a cause and effect. First, they did not like to retain God in their, their knowledge. Earlier, they're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And now they don't ret- like to retain God in their knowledge. They're trying to flush God out of their brain as much as possible. So that when you talk to an atheist, by the time they're you know, 10, 12, 15, 16, 18 years old, they have so covered over and concealed to themselves that they ever recognized there was a creator that as far as they're concerned, that's not there because they have not retained that in their own knowledge. They are the ones who have uh, gotten rid of it. And as a result, God gives them over. He doesn't make their mind debased. Giving them themselves over, is, this is the natural consequences of rejection of God is God removes the hindrances to that, that, that natural occurrence. You reject God, what happens is your mind becomes debased. Your thinking becomes debased. So what does the Second Corinthians 10 passage have to do with the Romans 1 passage? The focus all the way through both passages is not on how you feel. It's what you think. It comes down to what you think. And many people don't like to hear that the spiritual life is about how you think and it's not how you feel because they've never been told that or heard that in their whole life. And they've grown up in churches where the music and the message all related to bringing them to an emotional experiential encounter with God because that's how liberalism and later neo-orthodoxy defined what faith was. Faith is no longer an intellectual response to, to a proposition, believing it or not believing it. Now we go to one other key verse, and that is in Romans 12.2 where Paul says, do not be conformed, and the New King James translates it as world. But the, the Greek word is ion, which is a word like that, that's close to time. And it's the spirit of the age. The German word is a zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And so it should be translated, don't be conformed to the spirit of the times. Now, a lot of us have been around more than three or four decades and so we can look back to when we were children or teenagers and know that this, there was a different spirit of the age at that time. There was a different way of thinking, a way of looking at life, and a way of doing things. It was a different spirit that dominated the world system. There was, it was not that it was divine viewpoint. There was more divine viewpoint present, but it was the spirit of the age was much different. The secularism, as it were, of the 1950s and 1960s wasn't at all like the, quote, secularism of today. The spirit of the age has changed quite a bit. And so suddenly, as a matter of fact, in the last two or three years, and we have to understand that the term that is being used by a lot of people today 
is the Great Reset. And there were a lot of different quotes from a lot of different people that were used by a number of the different presenters at, at the pre-trip conference a couple of weeks ago that talked about this Great Reset. We're living in the middle of a tremendous reset in terms of the relationship between government, the governments, and the governed. And you just look at, at some of the other English-speaking countries like um, Canada and Australia, and in some areas of both of those countries, the level of tyranny borders on anything that Stalin or Mao or Hitler did, the level of control that they want over their people. So the spirit of the age has to do with all of the values, all of the mores, all of the uh, beliefs and practices of the world around us. What, what helps us fit in because we don't really want to be seen as different from the world around us because that's not popular. So what Paul is saying is, no, don't get pressed into being like the world, conforming to the values and the things that make you popular and the things that impresses the world around you. Um, that all comes out of human viewpoint, and it comes out of paganism. And we've been living in a post you know, a lot of scholars have called it the post-Puritan America after 1963, but we have slipped into really a, the broad-based paganism. Do not be conformed to the spirit of the age. That was the same paganism of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and all of the others that were in the ancient world, the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Greeks. And I speak of the Babylonians because we are living in a situation that is not unlike the situation that those first Jewish captives faced when they were taken to Babylon. And you have these young adolescents, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, and they are being forced by their circumstances to conform to the standards of the Babylonians. And they had to figure out on what hills they would fight. There were some hills that, that they weren't going to fight on because they weren't clearly defined by Scripture. But there were other things, like their diet. They were under the Mosaic Law, and they were things they could not eat, and they had to die on those, be willing to die on those hills. Worshiping an idol, they had to be willing to die on that hill. But they didn't fight over every molehill. And that's the way we have to be, is to learn that wisdom that we see of those Jews who were surviving in a pagan world that was constantly trying to force them to conform to it. So we're not to be conformed to the spirit of the age, but, so whenever you see a but, we have to figure out what the contrast is. And the contrast is we are to be transformed. Metamorpho, there's a metamorphosis that is taking place in the spiritual life. But how does that happen? How are we transformed? How do we avoid being pushed into the mold of the world system, of the spirit of the age? And it's by the renewing of our mind. We have to change a lot of our opinions, a lot of our values, a lot of the things that our parents and our peers and our professors told us were the uh, right things to do. Because it's right according to the spirit of the age. And we have to renew our mind. And this is the Greek word nous, which is 
the mind, the thinking of the mind. And why is that? In order that, for the purpose that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when we talk about certain things that are going on at the time of the judges and make application and transfer over to what's going on today, it's to help give us the insight as to the fact that we're going, we see the same kind of thing going on. It's gone on every century. All the, every century, it's different, but it's the same. It's conforming to Satan's way of thinking. So last time I put this up so that you can remember it. The foundation for all thought is your worldview. And what has to happen is to change your worldview because most of us have kind of an eclectic worldview and most people never even think of the fact that they're a worldview. And I've had conversations and you have too where you say, what's your philosophy of life? Oh, I'm not a philosopher. Well, you may not be a formal philosopher. You may not have a a self-consciously thought out philosophy of life. So you have a confused, ambiguous, ill-defined philosophy of life. But everybody has a philosophy of life. It's made up of your view of ultimate reality. Is there a personal infinite God or not? Uh, Has that personal infinite God spoken to us so that we can know truth? And uh, has he spoken to us so that we can know right from wrong and that there are absolutes of right from wrong? And as a result of that, we're going to make various uh, decisions related to politics, related to nations, related to business, related to individual decisions. And this is what's called a worldview. And it, it's not seen it, it, in our thinking. It is what is sort of subterranean. It's what's behind what we do every day and how we live our lives and organize our lives and organize our business and everything else. And so there's only really these two options that the scripture says you exchange the truth of God for the lie. The truth of God is that God is the creator. The lie is that the creation is self-existent and it just came along. It was always there. It's eternal. The universe is the only thing that exists. And so we chart it out this way. We have on the left side, God, the biblical God, is the personal infinite creator. Personal means he is imminent. He is present to all of us, all of his creation. Infinite means that he is transcendent. He is both. In, in, in the history of theology, Christian theology, when they put too much weight on one or the other, they go off the rails. He is a personal infinite creator, and there's a black bar there because he is totally distinct from his creation, which is a finite universe and where you have human beings created in the image of God, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy. But on the right side, this is paganism. You have an infinite impersonal universe, and there is a circle, and God, man, and nature are all in the circle of the universe. In the ancient world, they called this the great chain of being. A man named um, Arthur Lovelace wrote an outstanding book on this as, as a philosophy, tracing its history from the ancient Greeks on up to the present. It's part, it, is, it expresses the, the worldview of paganism. And his name was Arthur Lovelace. And so this is just a diagram. We'll look at it in more detail in a minute. 
And it was the scale of being. It was called the continuity of being, the chain of being. Uh, it had a few other names, and it was basically a hierarchy of static, unchanging forms with God at the top. But God is defined as not so much as God, but being or unmoved mover or one of the gods, lowercase g, Zeus or whatever, or the universe. Um, at the top, and then there's this hierarchy goes down, angels and then humans and animals, plants, down to inanimate objects. Everyone has its place. Everyone has the same essence. And so that means that at the lowest part, it has the same essence of God. It's just in a, in a diminished amount. So we all share in deity. We are all divine. There's a little God in every one of us. Isn't that what Satan was using to appeal to Eve? Rush, Judy, I read you this last time, said, apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being has been that being is one and continuous. God or the gods, man and the universe, are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist so that a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. That's monism. It has different manifestations. There's diversity within it, but ultimately it is all one. One undivided and continuous being. Uh, He goes on to say, both gods and men developed or evolved out of the original chaos of being. Chaos or darkness generates life. It is both the source of life and the enemy of life. Chaos and life are thus in a necessary tension. Lovejoy says that the essential and unbreakable links in the chain include the divine creator, the angelic, heavenly, the human, the animal, the world of plants and vegetation, and the planet itself with its minerals and waters. Notice they're unbreakable and essential links. They all are energized by the same being. And he says, this image became the basis for calling anything and everything sacred. Sacred Mother Gaia Earth. And so I think the next big wave of pressure is going to all be revolved around Mother Earth. He said, the scale of being was thus an important social concept that was used to justify many types of social inequality. And if you just pull back the covers a little bit on all the talk about racial equality, you're going to see some of the most insidious and hateful racism that you ever imagined. And I have had, I have a pastor friend who has told me in no uncertain terms that the worst races he knows are black people. And if they knew he thought that, they would shun him completely from their presence. I've had pastors say, Doc, I'd love to have you come, but my people can't handle a white preacher. And I'm sorry about that. Darwin said, this is critical, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man, what he meant by that is the white men, will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. That's in his book, The Ascent of Man. Talk about a racist. And one time I was working with a group of black pastors. I pointed this out. They said, oh, yeah, we all know that. 
But see that that's that's the whole point is that this is this is this chain of being is inherently white racist. So we have this doctor doc, um, the diagram here, the chain of being emanating from God, and you have the whole hierarchy all the way down to rocks, dirt, water, and astronomical and geographic geophysical environment, and that's all monism. Everything in that uh, pyramid is one. It all shares the same essence. In other words, everything in there, everything in the universe is part of this divine. Whereas what we believe is that it's not all one, it's at least two. It's two. It's the creator and the creature. And so there's some writers like Peter Jones who calls it oneism and twoism, and a lot of other people talk about duality and oneness. But that's what, how it breaks down is you believe in monism or you believe in two, which is the creator-creature uh, distinction. So monism, in monism, all reality shares the same essence or essential nature or being to one degree or another. And so I can hear somebody saying, well, prove it. I just can't say, you can't, I don't believe that, er, that people really believe you can reduce everything to one. Well, I'm not the one who originates this idea. Here's a quote from a well-known uh, 19th century playwright and Fabian socialist, George Bernard Shaw, said that there is only one religion, though there are a hundred versions of it. One religion, that's monism. He's not talking about, he doesn't really include Christianity in there. This one religion was clearly not not Christianity. Then for someone you probably never spent any time reading, you may have heard his name in passing. Uh, his name was Gottfried Leibniz, and he was an Enlightenment rationalist, and he called this ancient view of worshiping nature and everything the perennial philosophy. Perennial means it's always there. It never goes away. It's been there forever and ever and ever. And he had a non-Christian um, worldview. And he, uh, he said, everything goes back to a monad. That's as far as I'm going to take you, so you can thank me later. What is this perennial philosophy? Well, Aldous Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog, said this perennial philosophy is a belief in a divine reality substantial, that's another word for, for saying it has the same essence as all things. It's monism. That's what the perennial philosophy is. A author by the name of Peter Ochiogrosa wrote a book, what a great title, The Joy of Sects. That's not S-E-X, it's S-E-C-T-S. And in that, as he's classifying all the world religions, he says, under and through each of the great traditions runs a stream, a single stream, one, one stream, monism, a single stream that feeds each of these traditions from a single source, the perennial philosophy. Leibniz coined the phrase, the perennial philosophy. Aldous Huxley says it has been around for ages and is substantial to all religions. 
Peter Ochiogrosso says it's a single stream that feeds each of these traditions from a single source, a system that seeks to break down duality, two-ness, creator-creature distinction, and return us to the unitive, that's one, to the unitive condition of monism, to see that we are already one. Andrew Kahn, in his lecture entitled The Significance of Non-Duality, so duality means two. What would non-duality mean? One. The significance of non-duality, there is only one, not two. Why is it important that there is only one and not two? Peter Jones writes, one and two also figure in discussions of the Easternization of the West. Who is really one of the most responsible groups for bringing Eastern mysticism, making it popular in the, in the West? It was the Beatles. One and two also figure in discussions of the Easternization of the West. In American Vita, Philip Goldberg reasons that America has become Hindu pointing to a general acceptance of the ancient Sanskrit notion of Advaita, which means not to. Advaita affirms that all is one. The emphasis on oneness, or monism, is essential to all Eastern religions that have found fertile soil in the West, including ancient ones like Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and Taoism, as well as more recent additions like Sufism, Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, and Kabbalah. They're all monistic, ultimately. The Beatles said, I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. Could you say gender confusion any more clearly than that? It breaks down all the barriers. I am you, you are me, he is she. We are one. There's no real, they're just superficial, these barriers, and we can change them any way we want to. In the film, in the late 70s, you had what was originally the second Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back. And there's a scene that pictures monism. In fact, the whole idea of the force is monistic. And there is this fight. Luke Skywalker goes into the swamp. And all of a sudden you hear the slow breathing of Darth Vader and you hear the low bass notes and you know that the, that the villain is on the scene and he comes out and they get into a lightsaber duel. And Skywalker decapitates Darth Vader and his head inside his black helmet rolls off to the ground. Luke walks over there and pulls up the visor and he sees himself. I am you, you are me, we are one, he is she. This is what's become part and parcel of the American culture. An Anglican theologian who has done a lot of work, and I've just become acquainted with him, and he's got some good thinking, I believe. I haven't done enough to go through a lot of what he has said, but he makes this statement. There are probably ultimately only two possible answers to the question of origins, and they recur at different places in all ages. Either that the universe is the result of creation by a free personal agency 
or that in some way or other it creates itself. Those are your only options. The first one is two, the creature and the creation. The second one is monism. The two answers are not finally compatible and require a choice either between them or an attitude of agnostic refusal to decide. One of the great defenders of the faith in the early 20th century who fought the good fight against liberalism was a professor of New Testament at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary and was ultimately fired for his beliefs in the Bible, and he and four other professors left and started Westminster Theological Seminary. J. Gresham Machen, a great hero of the faith, said, between the creature and the creator, a great gulf is fixed. That's the biblical position. C.S. Lewis said that there are really only two answers possible, either in Hinduism or in Christianity. Hinduism is monistic. Christianity, the creator-creature distinction. Everything else, he said, was either a preparation for or else, in the French sense, a vulgarization of these. Whatever, whatever you could find elsewhere, you could find better in one of these. It, you only have two options, monism or the creator-creature distinction. Again, a quote from Peter Jones in his book, One or Two. He says, from its founding until the 1960s, American culture was defined by patriarchal, heterosexual, and Judeo-Christian presuppositions. In one generation, this worldview has been largely replaced by a radically egalitarian, omnigendered, pansexual, multi-religious and oneist belief system that has turned our contemporary world upside down. We ask the question, where's all this stuff about transgenderism coming from? How did homosexuality just seem to explode on the scene in the last 50 years? What is going on here? The Bible says it's the result of rejecting the Creator. What we see from those who are on the monistic, pantheistic side, the pagans, is that this is inherent to paganism. June Singer, a monist, says androgyny is the sacrament of monism. Androgyny is indeterminate sex or sexual fluidity. An ancient work, Jewish work, by a man named Naphtali said, sun, moon, and stars do not alter their order. God has fixed these orders, these boundaries between male and female, between darkness and light, uh, between, the, um, uh, between all of the kinds that he created. Sun, moon, and stars do not alter their order, thus you should not alter the law of God by the disorder of your actions. The pagans, because they wandered astray and forsook the law, the Lord, have changed the order and devoted themselves to stones and sticks, patterning themselves after wandering spirits, demons. But you, my children, shall not be like that. In the firmament, in the earth, and in the sea, in all the products of his workmanship, discern the Lord who made all things so that you do not become like Sodom, 
which change the order of nature. See, he connects the two. You reject God, you end up in Sodom. On a website dedicated to homosexuality, they state what we have found in investigating their own homosexuality actually surprised us, expecting to find maybe something to explain our personal feeling that there must be a spiritual meaning to our way of love and relating we have found that not only are there such roots, but they are the most precious parts of virtually all of the ancient spiritualities of our species. Paganism has, has an inherent connection with sexual perversion. Romans one twenty six to 29 again. For this reason, Paul is giving the logical result of prior actions, which is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. God gave them up to vile passions. He let them feel the, go the way of the consequences of their own decisions. He pulled out the restraints. For even their women exchanged a natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men. And verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. We live in the midst of that debased mind. The Israelites who refused to slaughter and annihilate all of the Canaanites lived surrounded by these who uh, were of a debased mind. And it changes the way they viewed the men and women within their culture, and that works itself out as we go through as we go through Judges. They're filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Peter Jones writes, The link between homosexuality and paganism, Newsweek's non-judgmental article in July of 2009 on polyamory, the committed loving relationship of three or more persons of any sex, notes that this relationship was created when some brave people questioned rules left over from their Judeo-Christian background and ended up pagan. What have I been saying? Judges is about how a spiritual culture focused on God turns to paganism and destroys itself and chaos reigns. They get rid of their Judeo-Christian background, ended up pagan. That is precisely Paul's argument in Romans 1. If you get rid of theistic twoism, you end up a pagan oneist or monist. Since the 1960s, a cultural metamorphosis has overturned the worldview of Christendom. At the heart of the movement is the gay agenda, which is affecting not only the U.S., but the world. At a global level, the Earth Charter, a UN nature-worshipping document that intends one day to determine how we live on the planet, states the need to eliminate discrimination in all its forms, including sexual orientation. In the summer of 2009, two UN agencies, the United Nations Economic, Social, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, and the United States Nations Population Fund, issued guidelines for sex education of children around the world. Five to eight-year-olds are told that, quote, touching and rubbing one's genitals can feel pleasurable, unquote. 
9 to 12-year-olds learn how to get and use both condoms and emergency contraception, the, quote, signs and symptoms of pregnancy, and ways of experiencing sexual pleasure and orgasm. They learn that abortion is safe and discuss homophobia, transphobia, and abuse of power. This is ultimately where a pagan culture is going. The conservative Jewish rabbi, Harold Schulweis, confesses that in the past he did not celebrate gay unions, but now he does because it is a very courageous thing to do and part of the evolution of religious mores. What the rabbi calls evolution of morals is the rise of neo-paganism or oneism. The worldview has always been the natural spiritual home for homosexuality, as any self-respecting rabbi should know. So that last week and this week gives us the framework for being able to go back to Genesis 1, understanding the divine viewpoint statements about what God intended for males and for females in the perfect world of the Garden of Eden, and how that is to play itself out among those who are believers in God and how they are ordered to order their relationships and order their family life and order their nations. And I feel like I needed to do this because we have to un- understand that there's only two options, and we live in a world that has forced many of us to compromise in ways we never should have compromised because we didn't always understand where the battle was. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and recognize that chaos comes from rejection of you, and the only time we have order and meaning and value and purpose and realize the fullness of our lives is when we walk with you. Pray that as we study these things, you'll open our eyes and help us to understand uh, how we, each one of us, has been infected by various degrees with pagan ideas, and we need to Uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Father, above all, we're just thankful that we have a salvation that is not dependent on any, any other thing other than trusting Christ as our Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.